I want you to hit me as hard as you can. What the f*** happened to Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain? The fast-rising auteur behind such exciting and challenging artistic visions as Pi and Requiem for a Dream seemed poised to become one of the most revered of ambitious new filmmakers in 21st century Hollywood. Following the increasing success of his aforementioned first two features, the Brooklyn-born Harvard grad consciously set out to redefine the sci-fi genre with co-writer Ari Handel. As a result, the two conceived of The Fountain, a lofty epic and sprawling heartfelt ode to love, life, and death that spans 1,500 years in time and space. Several problems arose during production that delayed the final product by six or seven years. Severe budget cuts, production delays, sudden shutdowns, major casting changes, constant rescheduling, and crew reshuffling are just some of the recurring issues that nearly sank the fountain interminably. And yet, despite poor box office results, and what many believe to be a truncated, 96-minute compromised version of Aronofsky's trailblazing vision, the movie has gone on to foster one of the most ardent cult followings of the past decade and a half. What gives? How could this have happened? Seriously, what the f*** happened to this movie? When Aronofsky turned 30 years old in 1999, he began to ponder his own mortality. This, coupled with the fact that both of his parents were diagnosed with cancer at the time, is what inspired him to write a story about a healthy young man dedicated to saving his true love from death. The phrase, death is a disease, is more than just a tagline. It's the underlying mantra of the movie's theme. When it came time to decide how to tell this particular story, Aronofsky drew inspiration from The Matrix and how it redefined the sci-fi genre. Intent on having a similar impact through a far different visual aesthetic, Aronofsky began thinking about ways of achieving such. In a deliberate effort, he wanted to move away from what he deemed the techno-lust and gadgets of the modern sci-fi genre and lean into a more organic representation of the cosmos. From the get-go, Aronofsky wanted to focus on the natural state of man rather than the robotic, technologically dependent motifs seen in contemporary sci-fi spectacles. About such movies, Aronofsky scoffed, We've seen it all. It's not really interesting to audiences anymore. The interesting things are the ideas, the search for God, the search for meaning. While penning the script, Aronofsky also consciously averted the conformity of big-budget action sequences found in movies like Lord of the Rings in order to be more original. In terms of the story, the complicated plot follows the same character, Tommy Creo, across three different time periods. In the year 1500, Tomas Creo is a conquistador searching for the Tree of Life in Central America. In 2005, Tommy is a neuroscientist determined to save his cancer-stricken wife Izzy from the disease of death. In the year 2500, Tom is a space-traveling spiritual monk desperate to protect the last visage of his wife's memory a tree she planted before her earthly demise. The challenging non-linear narrative abruptly cross-cuts between each timeline with an array of visual symmetry, leaving the audience to solve what amounts to a brain-teasing cinematic Rubik's Cube. We'll get into the various interpretations of the plot in a moment, but for now, let's get into the developmental phase of The Fountain. Following the critical success of Requiem for a Dream a year prior, Aronofsky took a meeting with Warner Brothers in April 2001. At that time, Aronofsky struck a deal with WB and Village Roadshow to produce a then-unnamed script that would ultimately become The Fountain. Brad Pitt agreed to star in the film after watching Requiem for a Dream and reading an early draft of Aronofsky's new screenplay. 
Once the project was approved, Aronofsky and his scouting team went off to Central America to begin exploring the Mayan architecture and historical ruins, which were planned from the outset to inform the overall aesthetic of the movie. To prep the crew, Aronofsky screened such inspirational movies as The Holy Mountain and Aguirre, Wrath of God, the religious subtext of which informs the fountain's overarching themes. Aronofsky has also cited Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey and Leone's Once Upon a Time in America as central inspirations. In June 2001, Aronofsky temporarily titled his screenplay The Last Man, knowing full well the real title was to be kept under wraps for as long as possible. Kate Blanchett was offered to play the female lead in the secretive film, but production was delayed to accommodate her pregnancy at the time. As a result, production was slated to begin in the summer of 2002. But in June 2002, Warner Brothers voiced concerns about the swelling budget of the film and threatened to end the project unless a more dependable financier was found. After meeting with several independent companies, Aronofsky and co-producer Eric Watson secured additional funding from Regency Enterprises. The film now titled The Fountain was officially greenlit with a budget of $70 million and given an October 2002 start date. Of that allotted $70 million, pre-production on the film cost roughly $18 million. Unfortunately, Trouble in Paradise hit before filming even began. Seven weeks prior to the first day of principal photography, star Brad Pitt suddenly jumped ship and left the project. Pitt blamed unmet script revisions for his departure and went off to make Troy with Wolfgang Peterson instead. As you can imagine, this left Aronofsky in no man's land. Scrambling to find a replacement actor in a small period of time, Aronofsky sent the script to Russell Crowe to gauge his interest in playing the role of Tom Creo. But Crowe declined, citing exhaustion from his time working on Master and Commander with Peter Weir. The rippling effect was devastating. In September of 2002, Warner Brothers pulled the plug on the fountain with no plans of exhuming it from the grave. Kate Blanchett was paid for her time and relieved of her duties. The massive Australian crew was fired as well, creating dire economic strife among those involved in their tight-knit film industry. Many expensive and elaborate sets were auctioned off, including a 10-story Mayan temple set to be one of the movie's main marvelous set pieces. Additional props, set decoration, and other items were sold as well, leading to a scathing public rebuke of Brad Pitt by the crew of The Fountain. When the project fell apart in 2002, Aronofsky retained the rights to the original screenplay he wrote. He decided to adapt the script into a graphic novel, ultimately setting up shop at DC's Vertigo Comics. Aronofsky entrusted his material to artist Kent Williams, whom he gave free reign to interpret the script in whatever way he wanted. With a wealth of research, imagery, and photographs provided by Aronofsky's producing partner Ari Handel, Williams began working on the project. The painted graphic novel of The Fountain was eventually published in 2005. Aronofsky had been so dispirited by the whole experience that he began working on other projects to rid the bad taste from his mouth. But in February of 2004, Warner Brothers decided to revive the film project. After seeing Hugh Jackman on Broadway in The Man From Oz, Aronofsky went backstage after the show and asked the Aussie actor if he was interested in playing the role of Tom Creo. Jackman agreed to participate the following day, and soon the film was greenlit once more, this time with a halved budget of $35 million. When it came time to casting the role of Izzy Creo, it was Jackman who suggested the part be played by Rachel Weiss, who happened to be Aronofsky's girlfriend at the time. Aronofsky agreed, and soon the movie went into principal photography. Shooting on the Fountain began in early 2005. 
Photography took place primarily on a soundstage in Montreal, lasting just 60 days in the process. For a movie meant to be a millennia-spanning sci-fi epic, that isn't very much time at all. While green screens were used for various background landscapes, most of the visual effects in the film were not done with computer-generated imagery, but rather through a series of organic processes. It was important to Aronofsky, and indeed a conscious decision, to steer away from the techno-gadgetry of most mainstream sci-fi spectacles and create something altogether new. With the budget sliced in half, one of the first choices Aronofsky and his production team made was how to visually represent the portion of the story set in the 16th century. Under the original budget, a massive battle sequence between the Mayans and conquistadors had been conceived. However, when the budget was cut, Aronofsky decided to make the idea of one man versus an entire army a metaphor for overcoming insurmountable odds, another major theme of the movie. The decision was also made to divert away from grand battle sequences made popular at the time by The Lord of the Rings and other blockbuster tentpoles. Another sequence that took a hit from the budgetary decrease involved the death of Tomas in Central America. In Mayan lore, Flowers and butterflies emerge from the bodies of fallen soldiers at the moment of their death. Aronofsky kept the flowers in the film, but ditched the butterflies, which would have necessitated pricey CGI. But the real challenge for Aronofsky and crew was creating the spaceship in the scenes taking place in the year 2500. Rather than the cliched engine propulsion crafts and what Aronofsky called giant metal trucks found in most big-budget space films, he opted to have the spacecraft resemble a spherical translucent biosphere, which highlights the awe-inspiring view of outer space. After all, death is the road to awe. For the futuristic scenes involving the dying nebula, Shabalba, Aronofsky and crew filmed real organic chemical reactions in microscopic petri dishes. This was done not only as a cost-cutting measure to adhere to the smaller budget, but more importantly to lend a timeless quality to the visual design of the film. By eschewing the inherent artifice of CGI, Aronofsky prevents the technological senescence that often plagues sci-fi spectacles over time, making them appear dated. In other words, he set out to make a movie for the ages, and wisely used the proper tools to achieve this. Aronofsky's longtime director of photography, Matthew Libatique, had this to say about the blessing in disguise. I think the streamlining of the film helped us tell the story more effectively. It's been stripped down to its core, to what it's really about, a search for immortality, when the truth of life is mortality. For these complicated scenes, macro photographer Peter Parks was enlisted to help achieve the grandiosity of outer space with minimal CGI and cost-effective realism. Parks began microfilming chemical reactions in a stamp-sized petri dish, including that of deep-sea organisms, time-lapse yeast growths, bacterial brews, and other means of fluid dynamics. In the end, Parks created all the futuristic footage seen in the film in roughly eight weeks, at a paltry price of $140,000. But filming the organic backgrounds was just one part of the process. When it came time to film Hugh Jackman as a meditative monk floating through the cosmos in a lotus position, the actor was plunged into a swimming pool and strapped to a rig that rotated him 360 degrees so his clothes could fall freely as if in a zero-gravity environment. Additional visual motifs in the film incorporate specific shapes and colors. For instance, in the Mayan scenes, triangles such as the pyramids are depicted throughout. In the present-day scenes, squares and rectangles denote the world of TV, computer screens, billboards, windows, etc. In the outer space scenes, spheres and circles are the dominant shapes. Thematically, these shapes reinforce the nature of circularity and how humanity has evolved over time to recognize the infinite loop of life as death, death as life, and the inextricable link between the two. 
In terms of the color schemes, the entire film serves to draw Tommy out of the Shroud of Darkness and into the Stage of Enlightenment. This evolution signifies the acceptance of death as part of life, a universal truth Izzy has already discovered. That's why Izzy is bathed in light during the entire film, while Tommy emerges from the darkness of 16th century Spain and climbs to the awesome light of a dying star in the year 2500. The use of gold is meant to mark material wealth and superficial beauty. Silver signifies the starry cosmos. White represents truth and mortality. In terms of the geometry of the camera, Aronofsky admitted that he deliberately shot the film in cruciform, meaning the camera moves up, down, left and right in a way that resembles a crucifix. The religious implications should speak for themselves. The Fountain was released in North America on November 22, 2006. The movie earned just north of $10 million domestic and roughly $5.7 million in other territories. With just under $16 million in worldwide tickets sold, The Fountain failed to gross even half its reduced production budget. As a result, the film was considered a major flop and still ranks as Aronofsky's lowest earning wide release. Critical word of mouth did not help the film perform well at the box office. Of the 205 reviews the film received, The Fountain currently holds a 52% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Richard Roper famously lambasted The Fountain as one of the worst movies of the year. Dana Stevens of Slate Magazine claimed Aronofsky paid for his ambition with a really stupid movie. Famed critic Andrew Saris panned Aronofsky's vision of the future as completely joyless. The love-it-or-hate-it division of the film left little room for a critical middle ground. Those who loved the film, such as Glenn Kenny of Premiere Magazine, likened Aronofsky to Stanley Kubrick in his dogged precision and unwavering vision, calling The Fountain a must-see event. With time, the film has become more popular among certain critical circles. In 2016, Empire listed The Fountain at number 484 on its list of the 500 greatest films of all time. Yet, for as polarizing as the movie continues to be, it has become a cult classic among fervent Aronofsky fans and highbrow cineasts. Much of the adoration comes from attempting to solve the mystifying plot, which has involved a slew of wild interpretations. Believe it or not, when the film fared poorly at the box office, Warner Brothers refused to record an audio commentary to include on the DVD release. As a result, Aronofsky recorded his own audio commentary at his house and made it available to listen to on his website. Aronofsky remains deliberately vague during the commentary so as not to give away too many clues. While he wants everyone to discover the meaning on their own, he does admit that there are very few metaphors in the fountain. Although the story takes place over three time periods, many have posited that only one of the time frames is real, the present. It's widely believed that the Mayan portion of the film is the visual representation of the novel Izzy is writing, the one she wants Tommy to finish when she dies. During the rooftop scene in the film, Izzy tells Tom that her novel begins in Spain and ends at Shabalba, the dying nebula she points to in the sky. Most of Tommy's journey in the film deals with coming to terms with death and accepting it as a natural part of life. He struggles to accept Izzy's fate, represented by his inability to finish her story, put on his wedding ring, and discover a cure for the disease of death. Therefore, one interpretation of the film is that the future scenes are merely a figment of Tom's imagination as he finishes Izzy's book. They represent visually a zen-like meditation on Tom's ability to cope with the loss of Izzy and the corresponding grief it elicits. Tommy evolves from the Shroud of Darkness to the Awe of Enlightenment when, in the end, he understands that he too must die to complete the circle of life and reunite with his beloved wife. When Tommy's physical being melts into a fountain of white lights as the nebula explodes, he's not only accepting death, but he's also perpetuating the circle of life. As the stardust rains down on the tree Izzy told Tom to protect, 
it begins a new cycle of growth. This is underscored by the final shot of the film, where present-day Tommy plants the seed of the tree over Izzy's grave. Death isn't just a road to awe. For Tommy and Izzy, death is a road to a we. Of course, this is just one of the loftier interpretations. Other readings of the film claim the future scenes are not allegorical at all, but quite literal. This would seem to align with Aronofsky's claim that very little in the movie is metaphorical. Whether the futuristic portion of the film is real or imaginary, it continues to stir debate among the faithful and the skeptical. Regardless of where you stand on the reading of the film, it does little to alter the underlying theme. As you can see, the fountain endured a long and arduous journey before finally making its way to the big screen. Warner Brothers delayed and shut down production at various junctures, auctioned props and sets, slashed the budget in half when Brad Pitt abruptly left the project, and failed to market the movie in a manner conducive to box office success. As a result, Darren Aronofsky spent nearly seven years making the movie. Although it flopped financially and polarized critics in late 2006, The Fountain has since garnered a loyal cult following. Whether Aronofsky was ahead of his time or not, at least now you have a better understanding of what the f*** happened to this movie.